Hello, and welcome to Primitive Initiative Podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Ray Peet. We'll be talking about his origins, Lamarck, novel events, radiation, plus some question and answers. Hello? Hello, Dr. Pete. This is Ozan. Uh, yes, hi. How are you? Very good. Great. Um, well, it's an honor to speak to you, and you've just helped so many of my friends and family that this is going to be a great opportunity to get some of their questions answered and some of my questions answered. Initially, I just kind of wanted to start out with you giving your history and background a little bit for those people who might be new to your work. Um, a lot of the people who will be listening will be quite familiar, uh, but just in case, I want them to kind of have an idea of who you are and how you came to be uh, the person that you are. <laughs> Wow. Uh, so it, it was something that really was in the culture, but 
but it just didn't get into our our history books as something that happened. But I recognized that biology had become totally dogmatic by the late 40s. And so even though that was a major part of my interest in understanding how how perception works and how the organism interacts with the world and everything that it does, understanding history and inventing new things and so on, I decided against studying biology academically because of that extreme dogmatism. So I found more empiricism in literature and painting. And uh, it happened that uh, I uh, began studying linguistics as an area that I thought could use scientific principles to get at everything that language does. And, and so I went to graduate school to work on a PhD in linguistics. Uh, and at the same time, I got a job at a college that uh, assigned me to teach an introductory biology course uh, intended for, uh, uh, well, introductory physics intended for biology majors. Uh, and uh, so that uh, was... Uh, relevant to, to my interests, uh, but it, uh, I was doing it at the same time as studying linguistics, and so thinking about how that science can be applied to language and the mind, uh, and how uh, physics is relevant to the study of biology. And uh, seeing at that time uh, the, the, that teaching job was uh, 1959 to 60, and at that time the uh, world of physics had, had been uh, also taken over by uh, dogmatic uh, uh, people who denied that there were interactions basically between uh, ionizing radiation and, and organisms. Uh, the the uh, Atom bombs were being tested, and the government didn't want interference with bomb testing, and so they revised and classified and hid all of the relevant evidence about the harm that X-rays and nuclear radiation from fallout, what it was actually doing. And so I thought that even in something that should require absolute empiricism, nuclear physics, that the science was being censored and shut down and redirected. Right around that time, a little later than that, John Goffman, who was a major apologist for the government, he was the pioneer in studying uh, cholesterol in atherosclerosis, mm -hmm. and uh, he, he was involved in uh, identifying uh, uh, nuclear isotopes 
so he was an insider in both uh, physics and, and medical biology. And he was the government's mouthpiece for saying that uh, radiation, uh, we don't know that radiation will damage uh, future generations or cause epidemics of cancer and, and dementia and so on. So uh, we shouldn't interfere with bond testing. And uh, similar arguments were being made. Uh, we don't know that X-raying pregnant women uh, will cause uh, leukemia in the babies, so uh, don't interfere with uh, the, the useful uh, X-ray procedures. Uh, and uh, so the precautionary principle was uh, considered the greatest evil for science. Uh, and uh, all of those influences made me realize that uh, education uh, had to be uh, freed from those pressures uh, if the government says you can't can't teach or even consider uh, Lamarckian biology or the dangers of, of radiation on the organism uh, then uh, I, I decided that uh, it would be possible to create a new kind of college uh, in, in which uh, teachers and students didn't depend uh, on trustees and uh, established institutions. So uh, I went to Mexico and, and started a, a college uh, for basically for uh, American students, but uh, both Mexicans and American mm -hmm. students uh, participated. Uh, and... Uh, after doing that for several years, and then I decided that I really needed access to laboratory equipment to proceed with my interests in both linguistics and other parts of biology, because linguistics rests on brain function, brain function rests on cell metabolism, and uh, so, uh, to, to advance, I decided I would uh, study for a, a biology uh, degree, PhD, uh, concentrating on brain research. Uh, and uh, so I enrolled at the University of Oregon in 1968 uh, and immediately found that uh, both cell biology uh, was continuing down this dogmatic line of uh, the idea that genes determine the organism, mm -hmm. that they are the brains of the cell. Uh, and uh, the uh, brain uh, biology uh, professors were the, the worst of the dogmatists. Uh, so I, I looked around and found the, the other end of the organism, the, the reproductive uh, the process starting from single cells uh, and uh, uh, the forces involved in uh, developing a full organism and, and brain uh, from a single cell. So it, it was a way of looking at the whole picture of what I wanted to understand. Uh, and it happened that the least dogmatism in the whole 
the science area happened to be in reproductive biology. It was a very low status area of the department. And so I did my dissertation on the metabolic oxidative changes occurring with aging in the reproductive system, especially the female system. Mm-hmm. And that put me in the position of knowing useful things about endocrine system interacting with the environment, nutrition, and so on. And that led to doing nutritional counseling, which I've continued more or less for 50 years since then. That's amazing information. I think everything that you said is so applicable to today because there's so many forces putting roadblocks for people um, from going in the direction that they want to go with their research and their and their pursuit for truth. But I think, um, as you said, you know, when there's a roadblock presented to you, you just got to find a different avenue to communicate what you want to communicate. Uh, because when you look at the body as a whole, you can find multiple areas to um, say what you want to say. You don't have to look at it in the specialty model that we have today where, you know, you got to go to the ear, nose, and throat if there's something wrong with your ear, nose, and throat. It's uh, much better to look at it, like you mentioned, in a holistic approach, kind of the Lamarckian theory of evolution where uh, you you consider everything that surrounds the organism. And it seems like everything today is trying to go against, or the current paradigm, even discussing how much impact the environment has on the development and performance of an organism. It's it's kind of frustrating. <laughs> um, so in terms of that, um, how did you stay motivated throughout all of your ventures that you went through, um, seeing how much um, the truth, <laughs> bluntly, was trying to be uh, quieted out? How did you stay motivated? Because similar things are happening right now, and it seems like people are being kept under immense stress, um, somewhat intentionally, so that we can't be more productive, or at least it's harder to be more productive as a society. Um, uh, Yeah, uh, uh, a lot of people are are thinking that these are just uh, new new events, uh, the horrible things that are are happening, like the lockdown and and the, uh, the... basically the destruction of the world economy on the basis of a theory of of a virus. Uh, uh, I've I've been seeing it coming since the late 40s when when I was aware of how the government was creating fraudulent science. Mm -hmm. And so it's something that I've really been uh, dreading and uh, uh, trying to get people interested in uh, over the years. Uh, In the late 60s, I I was uh, already uh, saying uh, that that, um, the basic process is turning the U.S. into a third world nation. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that was a hard idea to uh, communicate, but uh, uh, just the last year, 
millions of people are starting to realize when thousands and thousands of small businesses are, are being deliberately destroyed uh, just so that the uh, uh, monopolies and uh, oligarchs uh, can, can uh, increase their wealth a hundredfold. Yes. It seems like they uh, have hoarded all the resources to counteract any opposition and uh, any any movement from the ground up. Um, they are bent on destroying it. So uh, it's quite unfortunate that they have uh, so many resources that they can utilize. And uh, when people like yourself try to uh, write articles about the truth and do interviews, um, it doesn't get nearly as much recognition as it should because it has the power to change the world. So. Yeah, the indoctrination has done its work. Yesterday I heard a doctor talking on a video on Mercola's website, Lee Merritt was her name. She mentioned that a survey of the young generation, I think was called the millennial generation, uh, they asked them uh, how many uh, of their generation uh, they figured would die from the uh, COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, the consensus was about 2%. And she pointed out that that is 10,000 times higher than the actual mortality rate that, that the uh, actual figures show. Uh, and uh, everywhere, the, the newspapers, uh, uh, television, most of the uh, 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 websites are, are promoting the idea that uh, something very unique happened. But uh, her figures show that uh, typically a, 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 a serious influenza uh, epidemic uh, uh, will kill uh, 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 such a tiny percent of the survivors, uh, your, your likelihood of not being killed by a, an influenza epidemic are 99.991%. Uh, yeah. and, and she said the, the difference with uh, the, the worst interpretation of the COVID epidemic is that your chances of, of surviving are uh, one thousandth of a percent less than, than a surviving a flu epidemic. So it's essentially identical risk to an ordinary every year influenza season. Right. It's, it's interesting because um, the question gets brought up, has this even been completely isolated? Does it meet all of Koch's postulates? Or is there something else happening? Is there some other substance that could be causing something out of the ordinary, even though the numbers don't really account for something out of the ordinary? Yeah, there was a tremendous campaign in 2019 to get uh, old people uh, to uh, vaccinate with with the influenza vaccine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the saturation in the U.S. and Italy was especially high. Uh, huge campaigns, especially among old people. And I think it was uh, eight or ten different studies, including a a very big study done by the Pentagon, looked at the the effectiveness 
the influenza vaccine in recent years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the following year, uh, they saw that uh, it did produce a, a fairly small decrease in influenza infections. But the people who were vaccinated for influenza had a much greater uh, on, on the order of uh, tens of percent, the 30 percent to 60 percent greater risk of catching the corona, a coronavirus infection. Yes. So the, the uh, campaign to vaccinate for influenza was a major factor in increasing coronavirus infections. Uh, previous years, uh, several years previously, uh, there had been small studies testing what was causing the uh, wintertime respiratory hospitalizations, uh, and they found roughly similar uh, numbers, around 10 to 15 percent uh, of the uh, hospital pneumonia cases caused by influenza virus and a similar percent by a coronavirus. And uh, uh, the, uh, the respiratory syncytial virus uh, was a slightly higher percentage, I think. And about half of the cases, uh, they couldn't find a viral or bacterial cause. Uh, so uh, just general sickness and and old age apparently were uh, the, the greatest cause of uh, the seasonal so-called flu uh, problem. Right. Do you think these uh, viral phenomena, um, or at least their severity, would be decreased um, if vaccines weren't such a priority? Uh, yeah, yeah, those studies have a very consistent results showed that uh, just the influenza virus alone tremendously increased the risk of, uh, in particular, the coronavirus, a a similar uh, respiratory infection. Uh, But uh, it was uh, undoubtedly a a general infection effect on the immune uh, resistance that couldn't have uh, been something limited to the coronavirus, but it was probably uh, increasing your susceptibility to uh, many other uh, diseases, not just coronavirus. Uh, And uh, it isn't just the influenza uh, vaccination that's being pushed so heavily. Uh, That's probably the biggest one, but the uh, uh, shingles, chickenpox vaccine uh, as the vaccination of children for chickenpox increased the uh, hospitalization and even mortality from shingles in old people increased uh, as if uh, it looked like something more than coincidence uh, that that there was probably a, a, a version of the chickenpox uh, uh, virus uh, getting loose into the population. Uh, the, the way the in Af- Africa, uh, the polio virus mm-hmm. has uh, definitely decreased the, the wild type 
polio uh, paralysis, but meanwhile it has uh, created epidemics of the new strain of virus <laughs> that got loose from the, the vaccine itself. Yes, yep, I was reading upon that and all the conflicting information. First it was Bill Gates successfully eradicates it, and then later on they report on now the outbreak of the vaccine strain. <laughs> so and, and, um, uh, about a hundred years ago, more, more than a hundred years ago, people started noticing that the act of injecting things, vaccines in particular, uh, seemed to uh, correspond to a paralysis developing mm -hmm. uh, later. Uh, and um, the, the appearance of paralytic polio uh, happened uh, in the 19th century, uh, and the uh, hypodermic needle wasn't in, invented until the early uh, 19th century or late 18th century. Mm -hmm. uh, so it became a popular medical tool to inject stuff. Uh, and uh, uh, during the 19th century, uh, epidemics of, of uh, paralytic polio uh, started being reported. Uh, and uh, then around 1915 to 1920, uh, people were... Uh, in a, a very organized way, they were seeing uh, that uh, a campaign of vaccination or, or uh, other injections, intramuscular injections, were followed by the uh, polio epidemics. Uh, uh, and uh, over and over, that was being reported. Uh, and specifically, uh, people were noticing that uh, when the, the kids were in infected in the, the hip or, or uh, thigh uh, with the vaccine, the paralysis in uh, that particular limb uh, would uh, be uh, the, the main feature of the epidemic if they were in infected into the uh, shoulder, uh, arm paralysis would uh, be the main uh, paralytic effect. Uh, that was called uh, the, the uh, I forget the, the popular term, but it was recognized as a polio uh, vaccine paralysis effect. Uh, and that was seriously uh, in the scientific literature up until the early 1950s. Uh, and uh, it was still showing a definite uh, uh, correspondence that the particular uh, arm or leg that got the injection was the most likely to be paralyzed. And uh, studies in mice uh, showed exactly the same thing. Uh, intramuscular injection caused a local inflammation. Uh, every, every vaccine creates uh, something like a, a temporary lymph node to develop uh, the irritation attracts uh, white blood cells mm -hmm. and the nerves uh, monitoring the, the muscle inflammation transmit uh, up the nerve fiber uh, uh, particles including uh, uh, any virus that happens to be in, in that inflamed area uh, to the brain. Wow. Uh, and white blood cells uh, uh, migrate to the brain 
uh, from that inflamed area. Uh, and uh, in, in the mice, they could demonstrate that the reason that limb in particular uh, became paralyzed was because uh, the, the inflammatory factors had caused brain damage. Uh, but uh, uh, that uh, the effect of, of a polio vaccination causing a paralytic polio, uh, even though it was confirmed in animals as well as human studies, uh, the propaganda to sell uh, the polio uh, vaccine as a successful uh, uh, preventing factor of the polio epidemics, uh, that was sold uh, with the Salk and, and uh, Sabin vaccines. Uh, but uh, contemporary uh, experience in Africa is showing exactly the same effect of paralytic polio developing in the arm or leg where the injection was given. Uh, and uh, the if you look at the actual numbers of cases of paralysis in the United States following the successful elimination of poliomyelitis by the vaccine, there was no decrease in paralytic disease, but they renamed it yeah. uh, Guillain-Barre uh, syndrome, for example. Uh, and the swine flu uh, vaccine uh, created hundreds of cases of, of paralysis, but they they renamed it Guillain-Barre syndrome rather than polio. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with Thomas Cowan, but he wrote a book called uh, The Changing Nature of, I believe, Childhood Illness. And in there he talks about some of the advantages of getting these common measles-type um, childhood illnesses, uh, chicken pox, and the benefits that they can have later on on the prevention of cancers, multiple cancers, and uh, of course in a well-nourished environment and parents who know how to take care of their children, look after them while they're sick, it seems as though there's a benefit to these childhood illnesses. Uh, uh, yeah, activating the immune system uh, and, uh, in a normal way. And when you catch a, a virus in the way that the organism usually catches it, uh, the immune system uh, can uh, organize itself properly, uh, but being injected into the center of a muscle is definitely not anything the immune system ever historically experienced. It, it was always catching uh, uh, infections uh, from something you ate or inhaled or, or got scratched into your skin. Uh, and if you rub a material into the skin, uh, that's a safe way uh, to administer a vaccine. Uh, in the 18th century, uh, uh, one person uh, somehow devised uh, the method of, of giving uh, smallpox uh, material uh, intradermally, uh, carefully putting it in the skin, not under the skin, uh, and had 100% success and, and no sickness mm -hmm. involved. Uh, and a, a few practitioners have uh, continued advocating intradermal or, or friction vaccination as the, the most biologically effective. Would that require an adjuvant or would it? No, no, no. Okay. Uh, uh, the rubbing itself 
the irritation of rubbing it in is enough of an adjunct. I see. Um, once again, referring back to that book, The Ch- uh, Changing uh, Nature of Childhood Illness, he talks about these dens and areas where mothers would intentionally have their children uh, get the measles or whatever it be uh, so that they can get over it at a young age. Do you suppose this was an actual virus that these kids were uh, transmitting to one another? Or is it something endogenous, some sort of signaling like exosomes, let's say? Uh, uh, well, uh, the if you... When I was in graduate school, uh, and the DNA mania was at its peak, uh, I asked a few people around the department how they thought viruses originated, and no one would even (laughs) talk about it. It was just a completely taboo subject because viruses are very complex systems that can only live within a a nucleated cell of of a a much more highly evolved organism. So uh, the the explanation for how they came into existence, uh, no one uh, would talk about in in 
that genetic information, DNA and RNA and proteins, and that they communicate uh, so that an injured lung cell uh, emits uh, particles that are picked up by the bone marrow cells and uh, the, the bone marrow cells respond by making essentially uh, white blood cells uh, that will uh, home in on the uh, injured area of the lung, uh, carrying the necessary repair healing information. Uh, and uh, uh, these vesicles have been proven to be uh, taken up uh, by the uh, gametes uh, in the gonads, uh, which is reminiscent of, of how Charles Darwin believed uh, uh, the inheritance of acquired characteristics uh, worked. That, that has been censored out of Darwinism. <laughs> uh, but he believed that Lamarck was right and, and that the uh, tissue cells of the body, he said, emitted gemmules that contained heritable information that was sent to the uh, gametes uh, to be passed on uh, so that the experience uh, of the developed organism uh, wouldn't be lost. I think... And, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. These exosomes produced by stressed cells typically have the uh, size and structural features uh, of a virus such as the coronavirus, a very similar particle uh, manufactured inside the cell mm -hmm. in, in, by the same uh, uh, protein systems uh, and emitted in the same way into the bloodstream. Uh, so uh, there, are, there are people who argue that, that the origin of, of viruses is really uh, uh, just uh, getting uh, the wrong exosomes at the wrong time and place, uh, where they're healing uh, repair factors uh, within a, a person's or, or organism's own body. If they uh, escape and are taken up uh, under the wrong conditions, uh, then they can uh, create a disease. But uh, under normal conditions, uh, they are available as repair and healing factor. So the close association of, of organisms, by that view, can share healing information across organisms rather than sharing sickness information in the form of viruses. The healing information would be transmitted exactly the same through error or, or direct physical contact, uh, uh, but, but they would be uh, useful uh, under the right circumstances, which would mean uh, good nutrition uh, and, and general uh, uh, low-stress conditions. Sure. Do you have any thoughts on what happened to the Native Americans um, when uh, they were exposed uh, to these type of supposed pathogens, why they were so susceptible uh, to things like smallpox, or is there some sort of propaganda going on there? Oh, um, I, I think uh, uh, 
there, there probably was a greater susceptibility uh, uh, because of their isolation uh, uh, from other populations for uh, something like 10,000, maybe 40,000 years uh, on the continent. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that, that might have uh, created a special sensitivity. I see. So this uh, enrichment of the environment, not only with uh, good air, good water, and good food, but also diversity and social interaction seems like an important thing. Uh, uh, Yeah, and uh, the uh, changes made uh, by uh, uh, environmental enrichment, uh, that's an area that is now uh, uh, being better studied in animals. Uh, uh, The the structure and function of the brain and the immune system are especially uh, sensitive to the quality of the environment uh, where research had been done on on rats uh, kept in boxes, uh, horrible, uh, stressful prisons. The the difference between a a, a rat reared in in a box uh, versus a, a rat with playgrounds and friends and a chance to have privacy as well as socialization, uh, a tremendous difference. Uh, the brain is bigger, they're more intelligent, uh, uh, resistant to all sorts of stresses, uh, and obviously that applies to humans. Yeah. Well, I just want to take this opportunity real quick, since we're talking about viruses and coronavirus, to say that you have a great newsletter. A lot of them are for free on com. And people can also sign up on newsletter at gmail.com, correct? Mm-hmm. And there they will get uh, bi-monthly uh, newsletters from you and um, amazing content like the, the, the novel Flu, uh, the, the one that you had sent out previously, was just great. And it, it summarizes a lot of what we talk about now and some things that we haven't covered, but I highly encourage people to um, sign up for that and also peruse through not only Ray's articles, but also his books um, that can, I believe, also be purchased through Ray Pete's newsletter at gmail.com. Um, uh, talking about the environment, I, I kind of want to get into a topic that um, is going along with a lot of what's happening right now, and that's the increasing level of electromagnetic pollution, not only from radio frequencies, but also magnetic and electric fields. Um, it seems like we're increasingly being bombarded, and I just don't see any way in which the body cannot respond to such a altered uh, environment. Um, in your opinion, um, or, or in your research, do you see a great cause for concern with the ever-increasing electrical pollution around us? Um, yeah, uh, there is a very important book by Robert Becker, uh, The Body Electric, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that shows the uh, uh, effects in, in healing or sickness uh, of very weak fields. Uh, uh, and that was some of my early research uh, Starting in 1968, I went to Moscow to talk to uh, 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 Yuri Holodov, uh, who had published some articles on the extreme sensitivity of the brain and the reproductive system uh, to magnetic fields. Uh, and uh, uh, he, he directed me to, to some uh, uh, 
existing research, and uh, I did uh, a few experiments, uh, but uh, Robert Becker uh, spent uh, several years uh, doing very detailed research on uh, regeneration, for example, uh, under the influence of weak fields. Uh, it's a very powerful. Uh, we, we are electrical uh, organisms as well as, as radiant organisms. Uh, in the 1920s and 30s, uh, there was good research showing uh, ultraviolet emissions uh, stimulating and directing growth. Uh, at that time, the, the research uh, mostly was being done with onion root tip cells, mm. uh, and they demonstrated that uh, a glass that blocked ultraviolet uh, prevented the stimulating effect of one cell on another across the glass. But if it was transparent to ultraviolet light of particular frequencies, uh, it, the cell division on one side of the glass uh, stimulated a wave of cell division on, on the other side. That, that was part of uh, the uh, empirical biology that was uh, suppressed almost perfectly uh, for 70 years. And just recently, uh, several people are bringing back exactly that confirming, but using new technology of, of uh, sensitive detectors in which they can you use a machine to detect exactly which frequency it is being emitted by by one one cell to influence surrounding cells. There, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, uh, there is a website, Gunter Albrecht Tuller Cell <clears throat> Cell Intelligence, uh, in, in which he has some pictures showing. Uh, infrared emissions, uh, he can uh, communicate to cells uh, with an external beam of uh, infrared light. Uh, but uh, the, the most interesting research, I think, is in the uh, ultraviolet uh, wavelengths. So do you think that we can use light, like red light, to be able to mitigate some of the effects of these um, non-native fields? Uh, yeah, uh, the red light is uh, an essential uh, uh, factor of our, our environment. Uh, experiments uh, with plants, which obviously are well adapted to living in, in sunlight, uh, looking at their mitochondria, uh, they uh, filtered out the red light and let the rest of the spectrum uh, through uh, and found that the uh, mitochondria were damaged by the uh, two wavelengths and higher frequencies, blue to ultraviolet, mm -hmm. uh, damaged the mitochondria. But when they let the light, uh, the full spectrum, including the red wavelengths through, there was no damage, uh, showing, uh, in effect, that the whatever harm was done by blue and UV uh, was undone or blocked by the red light. Uh, and uh, following up that with instrument studies, uh, uh, people demonstrated uh, that if you put a, a bit of heat 
tissue, uh, very stable uh, uh, tissue uh, in in direct sunlight uh, and then put it in uh, an electron spin resonance apparatus which detects excited electrons. Uh, The uh, machine will show that the electrons stay in an excited state for hours. Uh, the same thing happens with, with inert tissue like, like hair. Uh, hair uh, stores excitation in the melanin. Uh, the, the, the plant tissue was storing it uh, probably in some enzyme systems. Uh, but the machine uh, would, would show continuing uh, electronic excitation uh, fading away over many hours. But if they, uh, in the dark chamber of the machine, if they briefly exposed that excited tissue to red light, the excitation disappeared immediately, uh, showing essentially it was quenching uh, excited reactive electrons take him out of the excited, possibly toxic state. Uh, And uh, experiments on whole organisms uh, used a killing dose of gamma rays uh, on on frogs. Uh, They they would uh, uh, determine what dose caused the the frog to develop radiation sickness. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, And uh, if if the frog was exposed to that killing dose, and within the first hour, if it was given a good solid dose of red light, it experienced no harm. It didn't die of radiation sickness. Uh, so the, uh, that was done in the 1980s, and despite that clear evidence that uh, radiation is is creating a state of the excited uh, electrons which proceed to do the damage. Uh, that uh, indirect or, or lingering effect of radiation uh, couldn't make it through the the dogma of the paradigm. The, the dogma was that, uh, that the ionizing radiation breaks in an instantaneous reaction, uh, the, the DNA uh, causing uh, 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 an interference with the cell's uh, uh, control system, uh, a totally uh, made up, arbitrary, meaningless doctrine. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, finally now, uh, more than 40 years later, that uh, uh, the concept of the bystander effect has been established. Uh, 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 Carmen uh, Mothersill is one of the pioneers of this uh, bystander uh, radiation research, uh, showing that uh, something uh, excited by the ionizing radiation not only persists in the irradiated cell, but it leaks out into the environment and spreads, uh, 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 causing exactly the same kind of damage, including uh, breaks in the DNA. Supposedly, the, the 
direct effect of radiation, but at, at the factors that leak out uh, from the excited cell uh, create exactly the same kind of radiation sickness uh, in surrounding cells. Uh, and uh, just the water uh, that the irradiated organism is in uh, will transmit those effects. Uh, one of the uh, agents is the free radical nitric oxide. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you uh, two questions here. It's going to be on the same topic. Um, so if someone, let's say, and I know you usually advise against x-rays um, for dental procedures, whatever it may be, but let's say somebody was in a tough spot and they found themselves having to do that. Would they want to bathe in red light before or after uh, such? Uh, definitely after. Uh, getting into the sunlight uh, and or uh, any bright light that's rich in, in the red wavelength. As soon as possible, uh, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, the, these excited states, uh, it happens that hard tissues uh, are uh, uh, very good uh, dose dose meters for radiation. Hmm. Uh, you, you can look at uh, someone's teeth in adulthood and find out how many dental x-rays they had wow. as, as kids and teenagers because those excited electrons are trapped in the uh, crystalline material. Uh, and uh, heat, heating to a high temperature will uh, release them from the traps, but uh, otherwise they stay trapped in the hard material. And uh, testing for a, uh, the, the emission of photons showing uh, that the cells are in an excited, uh, stressed condition. Uh, 30 years after uh, uh, Chernobyl exposure, uh, and uh, I think it was 65 years after Hiroshima exposure, uh, blood tests looking for these uh, excited uh, uh, emissions, uh, photons uh, from the blood cells uh, could distinguish the people who had been exposed in Chernobyl uh, or Hiroshima uh, all those years later. Uh, And uh, many things will help to uh, reduce that lingering uh, excited inflammatory effect, but red light is is one of the established factors. Do you see any benefit from a lot of these Schumann frequency uh, or or amplifying the Earth's own magnetic field type of devices? Some of them are very expensive for whatever reason, and some of them are very cheap. Do you see a benefit in having one of those going in your home? I don't think so. Uh, The the fields are so weak and so complex uh, that the main problem is that uh, those are drowned out by the incredible level of, of radiant noise created by uh, industry. So if somebody was living in a high-rise and had Wi-Fi routers and whatever you can imagine surrounding them, what would be their best bet in mitigating that besides moving? I, I think insulation from the uh, technology e- emissions uh, is the first thing. Uh, and uh, the uh, uh, getting getting out into a natural environment 
a uh, hundred miles from uh, a phone tower, if possible, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, just sitting around, uh, uh, sleeping on the ground. Uh, all, all of those things will uh, let your body start resonating with uh, with the earth and, and cosmos. Sure, I, I tend to say that to people, and spend instead of spending thousands of dollars on some device that claims to puncture through all of the noise, just find your favorite spot far away and uh, just sit there and just be mindful for a little bit. Uh, it, yeah, in, in some of my uh, early lab experiments uh, with uh, trying to measure uh, bioelectric fields, uh, I would uh, uh, hook up my detectors and uh, it was very hard not to get uh, rock music coming in through the detectors. The nearby radio stations would just absolutely take over the all of the normal fields of the organism. Yeah. I've heard of some people benefiting from a bed canopy, um, some sort of metal uh, Faraday cage that also includes the bottom of the bed. So you're almost in a complete uh, Faraday cage. Uh, do you see any harm? Uh, yeah, and having that grounded uh, gives it a chance to resonate with the earth. Would it be harmful to plug that into a high-rise ground? Um, if, if you could trust that the connection to ground uh, was actual uh, uh, it isolated connection to ground, but uh, I'm afraid it would be... Uh, running parallel to so many yeah. uh, other a- active 60 cycle fields and such that, that I, I don't think you'd have a, a valid grounding effect. Then in that scenario, would it be better not to ground it and just let it ride on the exterior? Uh, that, that would be my first guess. Mm-hmm. There is a uh, neurosurgeon, maybe you've heard about him, his name is Jack Cruz, and he's very into mitigating blue light and non-native EMF. And he talks about a phenomenon uh, that he calls uh, jump conduction. Uh, basically, uh, like things like 5G jumping onto metal conductive surfaces, even necklaces or something in your pocket. Do you see that as a possibility to causing damage to the organism or possibly even starting fires? Uh, no, it's not much. No, okay. Um, speaking of fires, uh, how, how are you over there in Oregon? Are you, have you been uh, dealing okay with the fires around you? Uh, uh, yeah, this morning we were without power for 15 hours. And oh, my gosh. Yes, yesterday the sun looked like a maraschino cherry, extremely dirty air. Oh, no. Uh, visibility of about a block. And uh, wow. the fires are, are uh, the whole uh, Jackson County is on uh, alert for possible evacuation, uh, and uh, uh, right right in the cities, uh, uh, Ashland and surrounding towns, uh, and uh, around Salem uh, uh, and very close to Portland, uh, fires are causing evacuations. Well, we all hope that you stay safe out there, Dr. Pete. Um, do you see any uh, evidence that this could be instigated, or do you see it as a natural phenomenon? Like, geoengineering seems to be on the mouths of many people right now and manipulation of natural phenomenon. Do you see that as a possibility? Oh, uh, that's part of 
primary <laughs> in, in my attention. Uh, one, one major factor is the, the terrible changes that they've made by damming the rivers, uh, sending uh, California mountain water to the cities to water lawns, mm -hmm. uh, cutting down uh, uh, the, the redwoods and the deforesting uh, the majority of, of Oregon and Northern California. Uh, they're creating a, a perpetual uh, self-sustaining uh, dehydrated uh, uh, climate system uh, because the, the great forests were part of uh, what would uh, cool the area uh, uh, keeping the, the, uh, the hot winds out of the area by by keeping a cooler, dense air sitting there, letting the ocean air in as the water evaporated, accelerating the, the normal planetary drift of the climate. Hmm. Now that has been a, a barrier has been created along all the west coast, blocking the normal cooling effect of the ocean and uh, uh, turning off the water supply. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the, the, uh, the, there used to be a good system of, of forest lookouts, uh, but uh, after cutting down so many of the forests, uh, they, they shut down uh, all, all of the uh, mountaintop lookouts that I knew of uh, were uh, abolished. So uh, the, uh, within uh, uh, two or three minutes of a lightning strike starting a fire uh, in the 1950s, uh, uh, everyone would know about it. Uh, I, I was working uh, in, in a blisterest uh, uh, crew in the woods, and uh, we would get a notice uh, where, where a fire had been spotted, and we would rush there to uh, see who could get to the uh, fire to put it out before the smoke jumpers came in. Hmm. Uh, but uh, the, the uh, ability to uh, stop lightning strike fires was very great in the in the fifties. Uh, the, the smoke jumpers would be right on it and sniff it out before it covered more than a few hundred square feet. And uh, so, so now, uh, the, the, uh, uh, several things have uh, overlapped, uh, but uh, uh, there there are probably even uh, forces uh, wanting to uh, start more fires, uh, especially overlapping with with the uh, coronavirus. It, it fits into their plan of. of uh, destroying the old economy so the uh, uh, oligarch uh, monopoly economy can have free reign yeah it's amazing the amount of assaults they're um, hitting people with at the same time um, do do you see any evidence for aerosol aerosol spraying um, around the start of the so-called pandemic I noticed um, a very decreased amount of streaks in the sky with fluffy clouds like I was used to when I was a child. And 
Uh, as uh, the last couple months approached, I saw an increase of these streaks in the sky with strange weather phenomena, almost predictably overcast after uh, a certain amount of these streaks. And I live in a very small town in northern Minnesota, and the airport here is limited in the flights that they use. So I'm kind of wondering, is, is there really something nefarious going on, or are these just natural phenomenon from planes? Oh, oh uh, every time there's... Uh, a leak or a declassification, it turns out that there have been nefarious things going on. Uh, so it, I think it's uh, sort of gullible of people to assume that there's nothing nefarious going on. Uh, but uh, it's just good to keep your mind open to uh, watch what's happening and, and try to make the best interpretation of it. Yeah. I agree. After a certain point, people have to start using their own judgment and their own common sense uh, instead of being told what to do or from the supposed uh, na nanny state. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, the, the natural phenomena can be very uh, surprisingly complex, but uh, it's always good to keep in mind uh, that the government and big corporations have been experimenting on the public and on the weather, uh, continuing uh, depended on uh, as many uh, weather control projects going all the time. Mm -hmm. Do you see this all as a part of the agenda to, um, as you mentioned earlier, make the U.S. into resembling a third world country? And what would be the advantage of that to the to the uh, wealthy class? Uh, uh, because uh, all of these uh, middle class people in, enjoying. Uh, Normal, comfortable living. Mm -hmm. uh, they aren't necessary. They're, they're consuming resources, uh, and uh, as this middle class has been destroyed over the last six months, the uh, billionaires' wealth has increased by trillions of dollars. Uh, yes. I've heard recently that uh, uh, Bill Gates' fortune, which had Day. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite unbelievable. What would be your best advice to the middle working class? Um, I know a lot of people are looking into moving out into getting some farmland and starting their own food operations and just becoming more self-sustaining. Do you, do you see hope in such an avenue? Uh, yeah, it, to the extent that it's possible to um, get control of uh, parcels of farmland that, that are uh, pretty much uh, completely under the power of the giant corporations. Mm -hmm. But to the extent that, that you you can get some farmable land, uh, that, that's going to be necessary to uh, assure a food supply. <laughs> the, the corporations aren't at all interested in maintaining uh, continuous access to food at good price. Uh, and uh, uh, small farms and uh, groups getting together uh, to, to uh, pool their resources so that they can uh, uh, do uh, things on on a scale that uh, only the corporations had been able to do uh, instead of small farmers competing against each other uh, they have to start competing against 
the, the giant corporations and cooperating with each other. Yeah. The, uh, the, the options seem to be dwindling. It seems like they're either going to have people coming and making the cities even bigger and more crowded, and then the on the opposite end, people are going to be going out and buying property. And uh, that middle part that we see right now, the so-called suburbs, doesn't seem like they might last. Uh, uh, yeah, that, that's planned, uh, planned elimination of, of the, the nuisance of a middle class and small business. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was uh, written up as as part of part of the plan for the world, uh, going back more more than ten years. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation uh, report in twenty ten uh, outlined uh, four scenarios, uh, all of them uh, uh, seeing artificial intelligence as the only solution and to make that efficient they had to quickly basically destroy the middle class to to put the artificial intelligence immediately to work serving the monopolies so do you see yourself continuing to live in the United States or do you see yourself moving elsewhere? <laughs> uh, 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 Mexico has, has always seemed like a, a place of uh, understanding and reasonable behavior. Uh, I, I first went there in 1955 uh, and uh, went back every three years as as long as possible, uh, and it, it's uh, under the present situation, it, it's uh, seeming uh, uh, even more desirable, despite the, the fact that it's uh, under more intense pressure from uh, neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. It seems to be quite a global phenomenon, unfortunately. Dr. Pete, I have a few more questions for you. Um, how are you doing on time? Okay. Okay. So uh, I, I kind of want to, we, we talked about hair uh, when we were talking about uh, red light and stuff like that. And I had heard you mention in previous interviews how even hair, when, when it's not attached to your head or, or considered alive, I guess, even though it would be possibly considered dead, but you're saying that it still has selective uptake in its minerals, for example, like potassium and magnesium. Um, it, that's accurate, right? Uh, uh, yeah, the, the, it's um, that, that selective uh, uh, ion affinity is a property of, of a substance that it doesn't take energy uh, to maintain it, even though the the living uh, cell maintains a higher gradient. Uh, the, the cell substance itself it is what's responsible, uh, and the energy is used to put that substance uh, into its uh, best condition uh, for uh, establishing those gradients. So then would it be safe to assume that the rest of the body since it's alive and made up of cells, would be able to do the same thing? Um, Because I've seen some mixed research on transdermal application of nutrients or minerals, like let's say magnesium sulfate foot foot baths. So would the body be able to selectively uptake things transdermally in an effective manner? 
not very well. No. Uh, the, the, the skin has a barrier to water and water-soluble things, uh, so you have to soak a very long time. I see. Uh, like, like, you know, when you've been in, in the ocean for uh, uh, two or three hours, yeah. your fingers start getting wrinkled. Uh, that, that that's showing that the the barrier function is starting to be weakened. At, at that point, at that point, you you do absorb a little bit of magnesium. So, so a long soaking bath uh, with some baking soda, uh, the uh, carbon dioxide uh, of the baking soda facilitates the absorption of of ions like magnesium. And would temperature also matter then? Um, a comfortable uh, temperature, yeah, so that you can stand it without too much stress. Uh, to, to, if it's around 90 degrees, uh, then you can comfortably uh, uh, stay in the water long enough uh, to soak up uh, some of the ions. Okay. And the heat would assist in that? Uh, what would? The heat. Uh, um, uh, a little bit, yeah. Okay, I see. Uh, that was just something that I'd wanted to ask you because I wanted to see uh, how applicable it was from the hair to the rest of the body, but it makes sense that the skin has that barrier that can kind of go against that. Mm-hmm. Um, when speaking of the origin of the universe, I'm going to kind of take it big here. Um, I, I heard you, I hear you talking about order um, and energy. Uh, being essentially united um, in, in, in matter. So I'm wondering, do you have any theories as to where this blueprint came from or, or the origin story, why things have to be the way they are? Or how, why do they operate the way that they do? Um, uh, no. Uh, the, the, um, my basic feeling is that the blueprint is being revised moment by moment that the general purpose even isn't finished yet it's in process everything is being renewed but that renewal includes determining where we're going how it's going to turn out okay so you don't see a and I know you have talked upon this um, predetermined order and how that's not so much what you agree with in the past, uh, but you see it as an ever-evolving thing that requires energy but then renews its own origin or its own blueprint. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just going to go over some more questions here. Um, one is about amino acids. Some people find it a little difficult to get enough protein without drinking copious amounts of milk, um, which I know is favorable for the calcium um, and uh, the, the, the good ratio of macros in there with the fat and the protein and the carbs. Um, so in terms of daily protein intake, is it a must that people aim to get around 90 or so grams, or can they, on certain days, consume less? Does the body have efficiency in recycling amino acids? Uh, yeah, yeah the, the 90 to 100 grams per day uh, was a, 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 a military uh, 
a funded study mm-hmm. uh, looking at uh, both male and female uh, army uh, uh, workers and found that 100 grams or more supported efficient work and general good health. But that was looking at everything being a soldier was part of the precondition and eating a basically standard diet was part of the precondition. So if you look at a person who isn't under stress and who is doing many things right and minimizing stress, including the type of protein, for example, too much cysteine, methionine, and tryptophan will create excitatory damage, nerve damage, immune system damage, and so on. So minimizing those potential stress-inducing amino acids will tremendously reduce the amount of protein you need for maintenance. And no one has really identified what those ideal minimum amounts are, but probably way down around 30 grams if everything is is ideal because we're constantly making hair and skin and lining cells of the intestine and everything is being renewed and some of the renewal protein is lost in the process. So it probably can't get below around 30 grams a day even optimizing everything. But those studies have barely been hinted at how to optimally reduce the stress. It's probably why calorie restriction is effective in extending life because in the process of cutting calories, mm-hmm. they've, they've always been reducing the intake of polyunsaturated fats, heavy metals, and these excitatory amino acids. So if I understood you correctly, someone who is looking to get around 90 grams of protein but tries to meet that with red meat, which can have those inflammatory amino acids and high amount of phosphate, might actually be doing themselves a disservice. Yeah, I'm sure that is not an ideal source of protein. Mm-hmm. The next question I have here is about um, probiotics and bacteria and the flora that uh, is talked about very often um, these days. And one of uh, the the details that I want to get straight is you talk about the benefit of having a relatively sterile small intestine, but how far does that go for other areas of the body? For example, we know that certain areas of the body have a different pH, and how about for the microbial balance, like the vaginal or, or any other part of the body? Should those have a diversity of beneficial bacteria, or how much should we aim for sterility in parts of the body? Uh, oh, um, if the body is, is uh, working, 
thinking uh, well for itself, it, it will uh, not be either uh, uh, supplying food for uh, potential pathogens uh, and it won't be harmful for those pathogens. So, uh, uh, for example, a study in Canada uh, found that uh, the uh, cows with mastitis uh, uh, they, they identified the bacteria and uh, a treatment that improved the cow's metabolism increased its essentially its thyroid function cured the mastitis but the, the total bacterial count in the udder uh, was uh, even higher in the healthy udder hmm. uh, so it's guides uh, the, the growth of pathogens uh, when it's in a sick state uh, and it uh, will redirect uh, the growth of bacteria uh, to uh, uh, things that are symbiotic and not harmful. Uh, so it doesn't matter that bacteria are there if they're quiet. Uh, you, you don't want them uh, eating either your nutrients or part of your tissues. Do you think there can be beneficial probiotics that people can take, even though their main problem is probably something to do with a lowered uh, metabolic uh, state? I haven't run across any that are reliably helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, uh, lactobacteria uh, uh, can be, become pathogens. It all depends on the health of the organism. Would you say then somebody who has um, issues intestinally would be better suited for either an herbal or a pharmaceutical antibiotic? Um, uh, yeah, uh, there are uh, some bacteria that uh, have such a, an effective uh, antibiotic secretion mm -hmm. of subtilis and lichenniformis, I, I think, are the to know um one more question here so hair on one side of the body uh, do you have any idea why that might happen to have more hair on one side of the body as opposed to the other um uh, there are known uh, uh stress induced uh, uh, asymmetries and one of the factors in responding to stress uh, it is the endorphin system uh, and uh, th there are various types of endorphin which act uh, preferentially on one side or the other 
interesting one um so let's see here um should sleep and diet be modified according to season and how adaptable are humans in moving to cold climates versus let's say tropical or cold uh, uh, hot climates uh, i i think the adaptation really uh, should be mainly uh, having a warm house and warm clothes if you're going to uh, live in the cold climate. Uh, if, if your thyroid function is good, uh, it, it uh, should be good in a warm climate or, or cold climate. Uh, I found that uh, moving to a climate that's too hot and humid uh, suppressed my thyroid. Uh, and uh, so a, a moderate climate or a controlled uh, 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 warm situation in a cold uh, region uh, and season uh, is the best for the hormones. Uh, if you don't have air conditioning in a, a very hot, humid, tropical condition, uh, your, your thyroid is probably going to suffer. Okay, I see. Um in terms of animals and their hibernation being induced by things like PUFA, um, what would happen to a human who is eating to fuel their metabolism um, and they get into a famine condition? Would there be a benefit when there isn't enough food to uh, utilize PUFA or no? Oh, the body is going to go into that uh, torpor condition, but... Uh, it, it goes more quickly if the mobilized fat is polyunsaturated. But anytime you're under stress, you mobilize free fatty acids from your tissues. Mm -hmm. And those free fatty acids always interfere with oxidative energy production. So stress almost instantly once once the free fatty acids increase uh, your metabolic rate goes down uh, and so fasting uh, uh, when, when it has the uh, uh, reaches the point of uh, depleting your stored glycogen it starts pulling out the free fatty acids and that turns your metabolic rate down puts you in a torpor uh, so you don't lose weight very fast I see. The um, You talk about the negative genetic changes that might happen from uh, environmentally induced, let's say, signals, um, as opposed to the, Dar the neo-Darwinist um, rhetoric, more so the Lamarckian uh, ev evolutionary theory. 
uh, the environment can cause these changes. Do you think that a single generation is enough to reverse these negative genetic expressions or changes? great to hear that people can do things about that because the scary part is is that it seems the authoritarians and the people who make these uh, food and chemical decisions on our behalf are basically inducing the type of damage that they say is the truth which is genetic fate and uh, uh, yeah it, it was uh, when i was in in graduate school and and even decades after uh, the standard doctrine uh, in the medical world uh, and genetic uh, uh, theory world uh, was that toxemia of pregnancy, uh, the, the basic uh, most popular theory was uh, it was either the inferiority of the mother or the genetic inferiority of the fetus uh, poisoning the mother's metabolism. Wow. And uh, so uh, there was nothing you could do uh, during pregnancy uh, that would either prevent toxemia of pregnancy uh, or improve the quality of, of the baby. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, animal studies uh, for uh, uh, starting in the uh, uh, 50s and, and before were showing a tremendous effect of changing the diet during pregnancy, adding simply glucose, for example, caused a much bigger brain, more intelligent animal. Rats and chickens, for example, developed bigger brains. And the doctrine of meritocracy, the whole neoliberal conspiracy uh, of uh, basing politics on the idea of genetic merit, mm -hmm. uh, uh, ab absolutely phony science all the way from top to bottom. Uh, uh, the, the idea that the, the bad genes caused the uh, toxemia uh, and the inferior baby uh, uh, was uh, used as an excuse not for improving their diet. Uh, uh, if anything, uh, uh, 
helps them to, to miscarry and abort so they don't reproduce themselves. Uh, uh, where uh, 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 simply adding salt to the diet uh, had, had a tremendous effect on uh, re reducing the incidence uh, of toxemia. Uh, salt and sugar and protein and, and progesterone uh, uh, made, made a difference of uh, more or less 30 IQ points. I see. So... Uh, uh, environmentally induced genetic changes or genetically modified foods or now mosquitoes be rejected by nature eventually if the 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 threat and the tampering cease to exist that, that's hard to predict but um, uh, yeah the organism itself uh, tends to throw it off it, it's like uh, uh, cancer cells uh, uh, the, the uh, Typical cancer cell uh, it, it is very short-lived, uh, and uh, it would uh, uh, lead lead to the disappearance of tumors. Except that uh, the, the dying cell uh, leaves a residue, and, and so the repair cells are, are are damaged by the same thing that caused the cancer. Uh, if you don't change the uh, the problem that led to the first defective cells. Uh, it's going to continue, uh, and uh, any time you uh, introduce a, a genetic change, uh, it's very likely to, uh, the, the way cancer cells deteriorate. Uh, you're very likely to uh, uh, shorten the uh, 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 survival uh, possibilities of, of that organism. I see. Okay, a couple more here. Um, when it comes to objectivity and subjectivity um, concerning quantum theories that are going around, do you see this as an attempt to say that anything and everything could happen so there really isn't any right answers and everything is subjective? Uh, yep, yep. The, the, um, uh, the, the Germany at the time, uh, quantum theory was invented. Uh, that, that was a metaphysical uh, preference because of the conditions uh, of Germany, uh, 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 severe uh, social economic stress. Uh, uh, they were basically saying, we're above it all, it isn't really happening. <laughs> yeah. So that, that rhetoric would then allow a a any authoritarian to say that you're uh, wrong, yeah. no matter what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the concept of everything is random uh, was a 19th century uh, version. Change is only random, mm -hmm. and not like not like Darwin and Lamarck uh, said that it, it's uh, 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 guided by biological value. Uh, that the change is only random uh, was required as a logical basis for for meritocracy. 
yeah. Um, let's see, I think, I think there's one more that I want to do here. Oh, um, have you heard of, uh, cell-free mitochondria? Mitochondria found not inside of the cell. Do you think that that is a, a product of the life cycle of the red blood cell, uh, emitting its organelles or ejecting its organelles? Uh, uh, I suspect that uh, they are, uh, seeing, uh, uh a particular kind of exosome. Okay. Uh, uh, mitochondria have been extracted and injected in the cells, uh, giving them new vitality. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I would imagine that uh, one of the uh, repair processes of the natural exosome system would be to uh, send some uh, uh, supplementary mitochondria to the sick area. So this is something that you propose the body it's doing by having cell-free mitochondria circulate? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that would be a uh, uh, very likely uh, function of some of the exosomes. Okay. Um, I hear your criticism of the uh, cells being observed out of their natural environment a lot, and, and I agree that you, you, when once you take something out of its functional zone, you can't expect it to function the way that it does in the organism. So in reference to that, do you see any value in dark field microscopy? Oh, oh uh, no, not, not much. Okay, so you think that's still a rather superfluous way of just looking at the cell once again out of its normal environment? Uh, yeah, yeah, very, very severely abnormal conditions. I see. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people are using those to diagnose things. All right, well, Dr. Pete, um, I've had you for about a little over an hour and a half now, and it's it's been great, such great information. I'm sure everyone's going to be very excited to hear all this. Um, uh, once again, uh, if there's anything else that you want to share with people, I think we already shared your email that they can reach you at and the newsletter and your, uh, paid and unpaid content. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? No. Great. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, hopefully we can have you back again. I'm sure I can have another slew of questions if you're, if you're willing to do that at some point. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. You have a good rest of your day and take care. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to Primitive Initiative Podcast. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, and share. If you'd like to support us, please go to primitiveinitiative.com.